Chapter 4 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 4 On the morrow, the porporina awakening, quite exhausted from a painful sleep, found upon her bed two articles which her maid had just placed there. First, a flask of rock crystal with the cap of gold, upon which was engraved an F, surmounted by a royal crown, and then a sealed note. The servant, on being interrogated, informed that the king had come in person the evening before to bring that flask, and on learning the circumstances of a visit so respectful and so delicately simple, the poor Perina was affected. Strange man, thought she, how can so much goodness in private life be reconciled with so much harshness and despotism in public? She fell into a reverie, and little by little, forgetting the king and thinking of herself, she confusedly retraced the events of the day before and again began to weep. What, mademoiselle, said her maid, who was a good creature, tolerably talkative, are you going to sob again as you did yesterday when you fell asleep? That was enough to break one's heart. And the king, who heard you through the door, shook his head several times like a man who is afflicted. Yet, mademoiselle, your lot would make many envious. The king does not pay court to everybody. It is even said that he does so to no one, and it is very certain that he is in love with you. In love? What do you say, unfortunate? cried the poor Perina, shuddering. Never repeat so improper, so absurd an observation. The king in love with me? Great God! Well, mademoiselle, suppose it were so. Heaven preserve me from it, but it is not and never will be so. What is this role, Catherine? A domestic brought it early this morning. Who's domestic? A valet de place, who at first would not tell me from whom he came, but confessed at last that he was employed by the people of a certain Count de Saint-Germain, who arrived here only yesterday. And why did you question the man? In order to know, mademoiselle. That is frank. Leave me. As soon as the porporina was alone, she opened the roll and found a parchment covered with strange and undecipherable characters. She had heard a good deal of the Count de Saint-Germain, but she did not know him. She turned the manuscript on every side, and unable to understand anything of it, not conceiving why that personage, with whom she had never had any acquaintance, should send her an enigma to unravel. She concluded, as did many others, that he was crazy. Still, on further examining the missive, she read upon a detached leaf. The Princess Amelia of Prussia is much interested in the science of divination and in horoscopes. Give her this parchment, and you will secure her protection and goodwill. These lines were not signed. The handwriting was unknown to her, and the roll had no address. 
She was astonished at the Count de Saint Germain in order to reach the Princess Amelia. She'll have recourse to her, who had never approached her. And thinking that the servant had made a mistake in bringing her the package, she prepared to roll it up and send it back. But on taking up the coarse white paper which enveloped the whole, she remarked that the inside was printed music. A remembrance was awakened within her to seek in the corner of the sheet for a certain signature, to recognize it as having been strongly made in pencil by herself eighteen months before, to ascertain that the sheet of music belonged to the whole piece which she had given as a mark of gratitude. All this was the work of an instant, and the emotion she experienced on receiving this memorial of an absent and unhappy friend made her forget her own sorrows. Then she inquired what she was to do with the scroll, and with what intention she had been desired to transmit it to the Princess of Prussia. Was it, in fact, to ensure to her the favor and protection of that lady? The poor Barina felt neither desire nor need of this. Was it to establish between the princess and the prisoner a correspondence important to the safety or the solace of the latter? The young girl hesitated. She recalled the proverb, When in doubt, refrain. But she remembered that there are good and bad proverbs, some for the use of a prudent selfishness, others for that of a courageous devotedness. She rose, saying, When in doubt, act. If you compromise only yourself and can be useful to your friend, to your fellow man. She had hardly finished her toilette, which she did rather slowly, for she was much weakened and broken by the crisis of the evening before. And while tying her beautiful black hair, she thought of the means by which she could most quickly and safely send the parchment to the princess. When a great liveried lackey came to inquire if she were alone, and if she could receive a lady who did not give her name, and who desired to speak with her. The young artist had often cursed this subjection, in which artists of that age lived with respect to the great. She was tempted, in order to send off the intrusive lady, to give for answer that the gentlemen singers of the theater were with her. But she thought that if this would be a method of frightening away the prudery of certain ladies, it was the most sure one of attracting certain others. She therefore resigned herself to receive the visit, and Madame de Kleist was soon before her. The great lady, accustomed to society, had determined to be charming with the cantatrice, and to make her forget all the distances of rank. But she was rather constrained, because, on the one hand, she had been told that this young girl was very proud, and on the other, being very curious on her own account, Madame de Kleist could have wished to make her talk and thus to penetrate to the bottom of her thoughts. Although handsome and inoffensive, that beautiful lady had, therefore, at this moment, something false and forced in her whole countenance, which did not escape the porporina. Curiosity so closely allied to perfidy that it can make the finest face look ugly. The porporina knew Madame de Kleist's face very well, and her first impulse on seeing before her the person who showed herself every evening 
in the Princess Amelia's box was to request of her, under pretense of necromancy, of which she knew her to be very fond, an interview with her mistress. But, not daring to confide in a person who had the reputation of being somewhat extravagant and rather intriguing to boot, she resolved to let her make the advance, and on her side began to examine her with that tranquil penetration of the defensive, so superior to the attacks of uneasy curiosity. At last the ice being broken, and the lady having presented the musical request of the princess, the cantatrice, concealing the satisfaction she felt at this fortunate concurrence of circumstances, ran to seek for several unpublished pieces. Then, feeling suddenly inspired, "'Ah, madam,' cried she, "'I will lay all my little treasures with joy at the feet of her highness, "'and I should be very happy if she would do me the favor "'to receive them for myself in person.' "'Really, my beautiful child,' said Madame de Kleist, "'do you desire to speak with her royal highness?' "'Yes, madam,' replied the poor Barina. "'I would throw myself at her feet.' and ask of her a favor which I am certain she would not refuse me, for they tell me she is a great musician, and she must protect artists. They say, moreover, that she is as good as she is handsome. I therefore hope that, if she would deign to hear me, she would aid me in obtaining the recall of my master, who, having been invited to Berlin with the consent of the king, was driven away, and, as it were, banished on crossing the frontier under pretext of some informality in his passport, without my being afterwards able, in spite of the assurances and promises of his majesty, to obtain the conclusion of this interminable affair. I dare no longer trouble the king with the request, which interests him only partially, and which he has already forgotten, I am sure." But if the princess would deign to say a word to the officers whose business it is to arrange those matters, I should have the happiness of being again united to my adopted father, my only protector in this world. I am greatly astonished at what you say, cried Madame de Kleist. What, the beautiful porporina, whom I thought all-powerful over the mind of the monarch, is obliged to have recourse to the protection of another? in order to obtain a thing which appears so simple? Permit me, in that case, to believe that His Majesty fears in your adopted father, as you would call him, too severe a guardian, or a counselor who would have too much influence against himself. I try in vain, madam, to understand what you do me the honor to say to me, replied the Barbarina, with the gravity which disconcerted Madame de Kleist. I have been apparently deceived, then, by the extreme benevolence and the boundless admiration which the king professes for the greatest cantatrice in the world. It is not becoming to the dignity of Madame de Kleist, returned the Barbarina, to laugh at a poor, inoffensive, and unpretending artist. Laugh at you? Who could think of laughing at an angel like you? You are ignorant of your merit, mademoiselle and your candor fills me with surprise and admiration. Now I am sure you will make a conquest of the princess. She is a person of impulse. 
It is only necessary for her to see you closely in order to be passionately fond of your person as she already passionately admires your talent. I have been told on the contrary, madam, that her royal highness has always been very severe towards me, that my poor face had the misfortune to displease her, and that she loudly disapproved my style of singing. Who can have told you such lies? It is the king who lied in that case, replied the young girl, with a little malice. It was a snare, a trial of your modesty and gentleness, returned Madame de Kleist. But as I mean to prove to you that I, a simple mortal, have not the right to lie, like a very waggish king, I wish to carry you this very moment in my carriage and present you, with your music, to the princess. And you think, madam, that you will receive me well? Are you willing to trust to me? And yet if you should be deceived, madam, upon whom would the humiliation fall? Upon myself alone, I will authorize you to say everywhere that I boast of the friendship of the princess, and that she has neither esteem nor consideration for me. I follow you, madam, said the porporina, ringing for her muff and cloak. My toilette is very simple, but you take me unexpectedly. You are charming thus, and you will find our dear princess in an even more simple negligee. Come. The porporina put the mysterious roll into her pocket, loaded Madame de Kleist's carriage with music, and followed her resolutely, saying, For a man who has exposed his life for me, I can well expose myself to dance attendance for nothing in the antechamber of a little princess. Introduced into a boudoir, she remained there five minutes, during which the abbess and her confidant exchanged these few words in the next chamber. Madam, I bring her to you. She is there. Already? Oh, admirable ambassadress. How must I receive her? What sort of a person is she? Reserved, prudent or foolish, a profound dissembler, or wonderfully stupid. Oh, we will see, cried the princess, whose eyes sparkle with the fire of a mind accustomed to penetration and mistrust. Let her enter. During her short detention in the boudoir, the porporina remarked with surprise the strangest furniture that had ever decorated the dressing room of a princess. Spheres, compasses, astrolabes, astrological charts, bottles filled with nameless mixtures, skulls, in fine, all the apparatus of sorcery. My friend was not deceived, thought she and the public is well informed respecting the secrets of the king's sister. It seems to me that she does not even make a mystery of them, since I am allowed to see these strange objects. Well, let me take courage. The abbess of Quinlinburg was then about twenty-eight or thirty years old. She had been beautiful as an angel. She was still so in the evening by candlelight and at a distance, but on seeing her closely in broad day, Consuela was astonished to find her wan and spotted. Her blue eyes, which had been the most beautiful in the world, now edged with red like those of a person who has just been weeping, had a diseased brightness and a deep transparency which did not inspire confidence. 
She had been adored by her family and the whole court, and for a long while she had been the most affable, the most cheerful, the most benevolent, and the most gracious king's daughter, whose portrait has ever been depicted in the romances of the great personages of old patrician literature. But for some years her character had changed, as had her beauty. She had attacks of ill humor and even of violence, which made her resemble Frederick in his worst points. Without endeavoring to model herself by him, and even while criticizing him a great deal in secret, she was, as it were, invincibly drawn to assume all the faults that she blamed in him, and to become an imperious and absolute mistress, a skeptical and bitter wit, a narrow and disdainful reasoner. And yet, under these frightful contradictions, which encroached every day more fatally, could be seen a native goodness, an upright intention, a courageous soul, a passionate heart. What, then, was passing in the mind of that unhappy princess? A terrible sorrow devoured her, which she was obliged to stifle in her bosom, and which she bore stoically and with a cheerful air before a curious, malevolent, or insensible world. Thus, by means of a dissembling and constraint, she had succeeded in developing within herself two very distinct beings, one which she dared reveal to hardly anybody, the other which she displayed with a kind of hatred and despair. It was remarked that she became more quick and brilliant in conversation, but this uneasy and forced gaiety was painful to witness, and no one could explain its freezing and almost frightful effect. By turns sensitive almost to childishness and harsh even to cruelty, she astonished others and was astonished herself. Torrents of tears extinguished the fires of her anger, and then suddenly a savage irony, an imperious disdain, tore her from those salutary emotions which she was not permitted to encourage or to exhibit. The first remark which the porporina made on conversing with her was that of this species of duality in her being. The princess had two aspects, two faces, one caressing, the other menacing. Two voices, one sweet and harmonious, which seemed to have been given her by heaven that she might sing like an angel. The other rough and harsh, which seemed to issue from a burning bosom animated by a diabolical breath. Our heroine, struck with surprise before so strange a being, divided between fear and sympathy, asked herself if she was about to be attacked and overpowered by a good or by an evil genius. On her side, the princess found the porporina much more formidable than she had imagined. She had hoped that, without her theatrical costumes and that rouge which renders women extremely ugly, whatever may be said about it, she would justify what Madame de Kleist had said to her to reassure her that she was rather ugly than handsome. But that clear brown complexion, so even and so pure, those black eyes so powerful and so gentle, that mouth so frank, that form so supple, with such natural and simple motions, all that exterior of an honest person, good and filled with calmness, or at least with that internal strength which is given by uprightness and true wisdom. 
imposed upon the unquiet Amelia, a sort of respect and even of shame, as if she had a presentiment of a soul impregnable in its loyalty. The effort she made to conceal her feelings of uneasiness were remarked by the young girl, who was astonished, as well may be believed, at seeing so high a princess intimidated before her. She began, therefore, in order to give animation to a conversation which failed of itself every moment, to open one of her scores, into which she had slipped the capitalistic letter, and she so arranged it that the coarse paper and large characters struck the eyes of the princess. As soon as the effect was produced, she pretended to wish to conceal the leaf, as if she were surprised to find it there. But the abbess hurriedly seized hold of it, crying out, "'What is that, mademoiselle? In the name of heaven, where did you get it?' "'If I must confess it to your highness,' replied the porporina, with a significant air, "'it is an astrological operation which I propose to present to you. "'Whenever you should be pleased to question me upon a subject respecting which I am not entirely ignorant.' The princess fixed her burning eyes upon the cantatrice, glanced again at the magic characters, ran to the embrasure of a window, and having examined the parchment for an instant, uttered a loud cry, and fell, as if suffocated, into the arms of Madame de Kleist, who had rushed towards her on seeing her totter. "'Go, mademoiselle,' said the favorite, hurriedly to the porporina. "'Pass into the cabinet and say nothing.' Do not call anyone, not anyone, do you understand? No, no, let her not go, said the princess in a smothered voice. Let her come here, here, close to me. Ah, my child, cried she, as soon as the young girl was at her side, what a service you have rendered me. And seizing the porporina in its thin and white arms, animated by convulsive strength, the princess pressed her to her heart and covered her cheeks with sharp and abrupt kisses, by which the poor girl felt her face bruised and her soul terrified. Certainly this country makes people crazy, thought she. I have several times believed I was becoming so, and I now see that the greatest personages are even more so than I am. There must be madness in the air. The princess at last unwound her arms from Consuelo's neck, to throw them around that of Madame de Kleist, crying out and weeping, and repeating in her strangest voice, Saved, saved, he is saved. My friends, my good friends, Trank has escaped from the fortress of gods. He is saved, he flies, he still flies. And the poor princess fell into a spasm of convulsive laughter, interrupted by sobs, which it was painful to see and to hear. Ah, madam, for the love of heaven, restrain your joy, said Madame de Kleist. Take care that no one hears you. And taking up the pretended cabalistic writing, which was no other than a letter in ciphers from the Baron de Trenck, she assisted the princess to continue the reading, which the latter interrupted a thousand times by bursts of feverish and almost crazed delight. End of chapter 4